Patience. Who's got it? Who's got patience? Hal's got it. There's one person in the church who's got patience. So now all of you need to, after, after church is done, go and really irritate him and see if he really does. And walk up behind him and pull out a few hairs. And um, When was the last time you prayed for patience? It's, it's a classic one, isn't it? It's like, don't pray for it, you know. It's like that, of all the things you don't pray for, you don't pray for patience, do you? It's like, because you're going to get your comeuppance. That's pretty much what happens. Or well, that's the fear anyway. Uh, you kind of think that if you pray for it, all hell is going to break loose. Uh, so you don't pray for it if you're anything like me. Uh, but I want to ask the question, though, what do we actually mean by the concept of patience? What is it? Let me give you what I think is a pretty good definition of patience. Patience is the capacity to accept or tolerate delay, problems or suffering without becoming annoyed or anxious. you like that one? Patience is the capacity to accept or tolerate delay problems or suffering without becoming annoyed or anxious. You see, at the end of the day, I think patience is actually about interruptions. That's what it is. It's about interruptions. It's about bearing up for the long haul without giving up or giving in to bitterness. So how do you go with them? Now... I hear from people around the place, let me give you a few sayings that people say. Some people just go, just suck it up. Just suck it up. Get over it. Don't care about it. Be stoic. Some of you may not know this, but I, uh, when I was a young guy, uh, a younger guy, I should say, uh, in my, um, probably up until my mid to late 20s, I was a very, very stoic uh, individual. Um, and uh, it's, it continues to surprise some people that have actually become a counsellor. Um, because I remember uh, in my, around about my early to mid-twenties, I did this spiritual gift survey in the church we were at. And you know which gift came in last for me? And like, there was like 20 gifts, right? So we're not, it's not like there were two gifts and I came, this one came, this is like 20 or something like that. Compassion. Well, think about that. You make a really good counsellor if you don't have any compassion, don't you? But the heart of it was actually Stoicism. And some of you kind of go, well, what's even Stoicism? Well, I'm going to tell you what Stoicism is. It's a little bit of kind of first century uh, philosophy, all right? The Stoics held that the entire universe was a living creature animated by the divine Logos, the reason or the mind. The Logos was identified with the god Zeus, and every person was a slave of the ruling Logos. You see, the Logos pervaded everything. Whatever happened in the universe was governed by this universal law of nature or providence. Um, everyone was just kind of part of it. Um, since everything that happened to people was determined, the only way in which individuals could control their lives was to control the passions governing how the external events affected them. So Stoics basically believed that everything was predetermined and the only thing that you could control wasn't the outcome of what happened around you, but it was your emotions. And they basically thought that emotions were useless and unhelpful. Um, emotions such as fear and grief were false judgments about the world rather than fearing or grieving for that which is beyond our control. One should accept it as part of nature's plan and avoid giving in. So the Stoics, and you, hopefully you can hear in this, British culture is very Stoic. And a lot of Australian culture is actually very, very stoic also. And what I'm suggesting to you today is that stoicism is not patience. Okay? And I actually think stoicism is a lower form of being human than what God intends for you. 
Um, so the Stoics promoted this. They said the goal really was um, apatheia. Does that sound familiar to you? Apathy. What does that mean? According to them, apathy was being without passions. That's what they promoted. And think about that in connection to patience and the things that you go through. Is that, is that actually the way that God wants you to handle struggles and difficulties that come your way? Does he want you to be without passion? Anyone? No, he doesn't. He doesn't. Listen to... Um, Listen to this, uh, this quote here about Stoics. Stoics often claim that virtue was what mattered most in life and that virtue is attainable through acceptance of fate. The person seeking virtue appreciates the logic of the universe and is indifferent to circumstances. Let me give you a Stoic proverb. There is no reason for joy, still less for grief. Have you noticed that anyway? <laughs> that kind of thinking's around, isn't it? in our society and unfortunately it's actually around in the church and I want to ask the question today how does the gospel inform patience how does what Jesus um, has come and done on the cross inform the way that we actually understand patience how does it change it my I'm going to maintain today that biblical patience is noisy and a little bit messy and I'm not going to read it today but I would uh, highly recommend you go home and you read Psalm 27. Make a note of it uh, if you can. Go home and read that. That is the classic, one of the classic psalms about waiting upon the Lord. But when you read Psalm 27, it's not stoicism. One moment he's crying out to God, the next moment he's comforted. And the next moment he's crying out to God, the next moment he's comforted. There's no kind of truncation of passions in Psalm 27. There's a sense in Psalm 27 that, that uh, patience is actually busy. Now, if you're a teenage boy or an early 20s kind of boy, you think patience, you think I've just got to do nothing. But the biblical understanding of patience is not doing nothing. It's actually, there's a busyness to it, but not a controlling kind of busyness to it. Anyway, have a read of Psalm 27. And the passage we're going to look at today about Jesus is where Jesus gets interrupted. Then his interruption gets interrupted. And in the process, he interrupts two people along the way. And you know what happens? A girl dies because of all these interruptions. That's what we're going to look at. When interruptions seem like obstacles. If you've got your Bible, you can follow in your Bible or you can read on the screen from Mark 5. We're going to start at verse 21. So just a quick recap. We've gone from, in Mark chapter 5, we've gone from the demoniac. Um, Jesus has done the storm. He's gone through the storm with the disciples in the back end of Mark 4. The early part of Mark 5, he's gone and he's met the demoniac across the, uh, the Sea of Galilee and he's just arrived back. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. You remember I talked a little while ago about the picture of Jesus is not kind of flowing hair with product in it, you know, with a lovely white gown. It's really kind of the paparazzi and people thronging around him to the threat sometimes of his own well-being. Um, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, uh, Jairus by name. You notice this? This is his first interruption. He's in there with the crowd and this guy comes along and says, I've got a problem and I need your help. And seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. So this guy's the head of the local synagogue. 
All right? He's not a paid professional, probably. He's a, uh, he's, he's a lay person, but he's kind of the guy that's in charge of public worship, the reading of scriptures, preaching and public prayer. He was the guy that kind of organised all of that kind of stuff. So pre-me working for the project, it was probably, I might have been the head of the project synagogue, if you want to put it that way. All right? Just kind of pulling everything together and making sure that things happened the way that they needed to happen and prayers were prayed and preachers preached and... Um, usually synagogues had one ruler Um, his daughter is really saying his daughter's pretty well dead like she's not just sick she's just just about dead and he went with him and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him I mean that's when you hear that word thronged it's like the crowd is really threatening him they're quite menacing in this case and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians listen to this you've got to listen to this she'd suffered from her disease her problem she obviously had some kind of gynecological problem she was suffering under that she had suffered much under many physicians so think about that she's not only suffering from the disease see she's suffering from the cures as well and had spent all that she had. Not only that, she's suffering from the disease or whatever it is, she's suffering from the cures and she's now got no money, so she's suffering from having no money. This woman, in terms of the, Levit- Le- the Levitical law in the Old Testament, it's very, very clear, um, and I'll give you the reference, we won't read it, but it's Levit- Leviticus 15:25 to 27. She was an unclean woman and the law stipulated that she would be an unclean woman until her flow of blood stopped. Anyone she touched would be unclean until evening. I mean, she's probably either divorced or never married. And she's run out of money and her health is worse because of the help from the doctors. This is a bad situation. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment for she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? I mean, you can imagine that, can't you? If the crowd is menacing and threatening Jesus' welfare, it's a pretty good question in one sense. And he looked around to see who had done it. Actually, if I just pause there for a sec, you know what's interesting about that statement from the disciples? This is another case where humans rebuke God. <laughs> like, you just, just a word of advice, you've got to be really careful when you do that. Because <laughs> you're going to be wrong um, every time. And he looked around to see who had done it, but the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, you know what's interesting, just at this point, just as a side note, if, this, if Jesus was a doctor and he lived in our day, he's a good chance of being sued at this point, isn't he? You know why? Because there's a girl that's got a very acute condition who's dying and he stops to help the lady with the chronic condition. 
If you went to the emergency department at Toowoomba Base Hospital and they did that to you, you'd be calling Shine lawyers probably on Monday. Especially, especially if it meant the one that was sick and at the point of death actually died. What, what the heck is he doing? He stopped and he's dealing with the lady with a chronic condition and leaving the acute one to die. Imagine being uh, Jairus at this point in time. Imagine him. I mean, this is a mega patience test, isn't it? For Jairus. Mega patience test. It's like, my, my kid's dying. My 12-year-old kid's dying and you're talking to this lady who's still going to be alive in two days' time. There's a sense here that Jesus needs to hurry to get to Jairus' daughter and I think that's the reason why the disciples are rebuking Jesus. They're just going, you got this wrong, man. Like there's people everywhere, just drop it and you've got to get to where you need to get to otherwise that kid's going to die. And the worst happens. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. You know, add a little note. One of the things that used to happen back in the day is they used to have professional mourners. Some of you go, I miss my calling. That would be cool. Like, just get paid to cry and wail. But that's what they used to have. There was a professional guild of mourners in first century Judaism, and they were required at funerals. Listen to this. Rabbi Judah was a really significant rabbi in the uh, second century. I think he was born about AD 135. He said this, Even the poorest person in Israel should hire at least two flute players and one wailing woman. (laughs) And it's really interesting what actually happens with these mourners, right? And when he had ended, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Good sign, they're paid. <laughs> All right? If you can switch from crying to laughing that quickly, it's a good indication that they're actually getting some cash out of it. Uh, but he put them all outside. Uh, I would have loved to have been there for that bit. And that's always amused me. Just get out, will you? You lot, you're pathetic. Just get out. I'm here to do something else. You don't understand it. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the girl was, taking her by the hand. And he said to her, Telleth her, Kumai, I don't even know whether that's how you say it, but that's how I just said it, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were, they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. So here's what we're going to do today. I think there's three things that come out of this passage. Here they are. You can interrupt Jesus. Jesus is going to interrupt you. And Jesus' timing is always sublime. So let's have a look at the first one. You can interrupt Jesus. Check this out. 
what we've got in Mark chapter 5 is we've got a series of people that no one else can help. We've got the demoniac at the start of Mark chapter 5. No one can even tie the guy up. No one can help him. Jesus goes to him. Then we've got this story here where Jairus comes along. He's got a daughter that's sick. No one can help her. She's dying. And then we've got the woman with the flow of blood. And everyone's tried to help her and they've just made it worse. And they're all coming to Jesus. And I think one of the things Jesus would want you to know today is that you can interrupt him. Say interrupt him. Interrupt him with your stuff. Interrupt him with the stuff that you can't control and no one else can actually control. If you feel like a hopeless case, you're a Jesus case. That's just the bottom line because that's what he specialises in, hopeless cases. Just think about all the characters in, the, in Mark chapter 5. You know one of the things that's in common with all of them is that all of them are unclean. The daughter's going to die and Jesus is going to go to her and she's going to be dead and you're not supposed to touch a dead body because that makes you unclean. The lady with the flow of blood is unclean. The demoniacs living in the tombs, he's unclean. They're all unclean and no one can do anything for any of them anymore. Their only hope is Jesus. And the only question that really remains is this. Is Jesus too busy? Is he too great? Is he too holy? Is he too aloof? Is he too uncaring? And what's the answer? No, he's not. No, he's not. In fact, Jesus himself, in uh, the Gospel of Luke, in Luke 18, verse 1 to 18, uses, uh, tells a parable about a, an unjust judge and someone going to this judge at night and banging on his door and saying, I want justice. And the guy's going, I'm in bed, my kids are in bed, we're not getting up. He's, and they keep banging on the door. And what's Jesus saying? Bang on my door and interrupt me. Bang on my door and interrupt me. You know, the, th- the thing with us is the interruptions that come into our lives can be, can be very, very difficult and very, very hard. And they seem completely random. But you know what? One of the things I think we see in this story here is that the interruptions that come to Jesus all seem to be part of some kind of plan that, uh, that he's following. All some kind of plan that the Father's given to him. And Jesus is, Jesus is able to be patient. Because he's trusting in his father and he's looking to his father. And to help people is the plan. To help people is the plan. But what we actually see in this story, as I mentioned before, is we see people trying to almost stop Jesus from doing his plan. So the disciples rebuke Jesus for, um, for asking who touched him. And even when he gets to Jairus' place, everyone laughs at him, which is a kind of rebuke, like, what are you doing? And in the midst of all of this, Jesus is able to handle the interruptions that people bring into him to bring about help for people. Do you see that? And so it doesn't matter what your situation is today, Jesus says to you, interrupt me. He can handle it. Sometimes you might think, I think he's just going to be annoyed because he's got a war that he's managing probably over in Afghanistan somewhere and there's some suicide bomber probably cooking something up somewhere and he's got to look after that. And you kind of think, I just don't want to overload him. And he says, no, overload me. Interrupt me. I can do it. I can look after it. And you know what? He's not going to fly off the handle. I don't know whether you've had someone around you and you're just kind of going, I really need to ask them to do something, but they're under so much pressure at the moment, I just don't want to ask them. I don't want to ask them because I think they're just going to lose it with me and they'll just get angry with me. He's not like that. Isn't that good news? Amen? He's not like that. So you go and you interrupt him. I mean, I think it's amazing that in Luke uh, he, he uses the uh, analogy of an unjust judge, unjust judge, in bed at night wanting to go to sleep. You know, it's not like 8.15 schedule, God clocks on at 8, 
So I'm going to, you know, I'll leave my quiet time at eight and I'll pray and it'll all be sweet, all right, because he's on the job. He just, no, just get me up. Get me up. Second point. Jesus will interrupt you. Have a look up on the screen here. I want to deal with uh, the two characters in this story and the way that Jesus interrupts them. The first one I want to deal with is the woman. I want to ask the question um, for you. What, what do you think the woman did it secretly? Do you know why I think the woman did it secretly? She's just lived 12 years of complete shame. And do you know, I don't know whether this has ever happened to you, but do you know, one of the things that happens with people, one of the things that happens with me, is sometimes you can have such a long period of struggle with something, instead of actually being fronting up to something and actually dealing with it in public, you just kind of try to sneak away to just kind of deal with it. And, and I'm not saying that in a critical way toward this lady because she has lived a life of incredible shame in that culture. She had 12 years of being unclean. And you can understand it, can't you? I just want to sneak it. And do you know she was even breaking the Torah by going into that crowd? Because you know what? Every single person that she touches on the way to get to Jesus gets unclean, according to the law. And when Jesus turns around, you have a look up there, when Jesus turns around and says, who touched me? Look at what the woman does. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. Now, I think you can pretty comfortably read into that some, some stuff about what was actually going on inside of her. Do you notice that? She's not standing up. See, that, that's been her posture, hasn't it, pretty much for 12 years, is being down. And so when someone calls her out, what does she do? She goes down. That's what she does. When she realises she's been found out, she falls down and she kind of begs, doesn't she? Now, what's remarkable about what Jesus does, and I've thought about this this week, and I wonder how you would go with it. There's Honestly, there's part of me that would just go, seriously, someone who's been in shame and uncleanness for 12 years, you're going to call them out, and you're going to publicly draw attention to what they've just done, that they've tried to sneak a miracle? You with me on that? That's weird. Well, what's he doing? And this is the point. The woman came and she wanted to get her healing. And she, in a sense, interrupted Jesus. And Jesus turned around and he interrupted her, didn't he? He interrupted her. Now, what's he doing when he interrupts her? Well, you know what? If you look at Jesus through the Gospels here, you know, you know what's true about Jesus? He never heals someone without connecting with them. He never heals someone without connecting with them. Let me just give you a, a nice, tight little definition of, uh, of shame. This, this comes from Ed Welsh. Shame is about what you've done, what others have done to you, and who you are associated with. It's usually one of those three. And for this lady, her body had done something shameful that had made her unclean. And what's interesting here is that Jesus is not going to be happy with a healing only. And you know, you probably get the sense here that she might have got away with that. Don't you? I should just get in, get a touch, and she might have got away with it. But you know what? Discipleship is not simply getting our needs met. 
It's actually about being in the presence of Jesus, isn't it? It's about being known by him. It's about following him. And you know what I think is so incredibly beautiful? This lady's shame has come about because of something her body has done to her. But do you remember what I said to you was the third part or the third way that people can feel shame? You can feel shame because of who you are associated with. What does Jesus call her after it all? He calls her daughter. Isn't that beautiful? You see, I think what Jesus is doing here is Jesus is saying, I'm going to associate you with me. When I was a... uh, Living in Sydney, I was a drummer in a band down there. And one of the classic thing, things about uh, bands is that they have groupies. You know what a groupie is? A groupie is someone that hangs around with someone else that can do something that they can't and they kind of hope that the glory rubs off on them. That's what a groupie is, all right? Whatever it is that they value, they hope that that glory kind of rubs off. What Jesus is doing is kind of like being a groupie but on a far grander scale, isn't it? She was an outcast, she was unclean, she was separate, but now she's family. She's his daughter. She didn't bank on that, did she? Jesus interrupted her. And Jairus, let's have a look at him. While Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter's dead, why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. You see, it looks here like it's too late for patience. It's over. She's dead. And the helpers have come to let Jairus know, forget it. It's not worth it. What does Jesus say to Jairus? He says, trust me, be patient. There's no need to hurry. And for some of you in, uh, in your life at the moment, you need to hear that from Jesus. He's saying to you, trust me, be patient. There's no need to hurry. My grace and my love are compatible with what seem to you to be unconscionable delays. I will not be hurried because I love you. That's what he's saying to Jairus. He's saying, I will not be hurried because I love you. And he's kind of saying to him, if you try to impose your understanding of schedule and timing on me, you're going to struggle to, to feel loved by me. And that would be true for us too. If we try to impose our understanding of schedule and timing on Jesus, we'll struggle to feel loved by him. Because he doesn't do things when we want him to do things. Do you know what that word there in the Greek, uh, do not fear, only believe, the word for believe there, you know what it actually means? It means trust me. Trust me. And he's saying to Jairus, he's saying, trust me. When the worst has happened, trust me. That's what he's saying. He's saying, don't look at the danger. Don't look at the disaster. Look at me. Wait for my timing. Don't look at the problem. Don't orient to the problem, Jesus says. Look at me. Turn to me. Look at me. Watch me and wait for me. Trust me. I want to show a clip from uh, the latest Hobbit movie, actually, The Battle of the Five Armies. It's a little bit probably freaky if uh, you've got young kids, so just be aware of that. But pretty much the start of the uh, last movie, The Hobbit, and the, uh, the second movie was all about the fact that this, um, this dragon called uh, Smaug uh, had basically uh, been in charge of this lair of gold, and the dragon ended up getting out and uh, going down to 
the people uh, of Lake Town and basically starting to destroy them. So sending out um, fire from its mouth and burning it and just trashing the whole thing. There's lots of people being killed. Uh, this guy, Bard the Bowman, uh, is able to break free from his cell. He was in prison. He was able to break free. And what you're actually going to see here is him and his son on this tower. And Bard has tried to kill the dragon with... Uh, uh, a bow and arrows, but it hasn't worked. There's one arrow that can work, and there's one um, defect in armory on this uh, dragon's body that this uh, arrow could actually go through. And uh, that's pretty much, pretty much got you up to date. Here we go. Dad! Hey, what are you doing? Why didn't you leave? You were supposed to leave. I came to help you. No! Nothing can stop it, no. This might. Ben, you go back. You get out of here now. against me. Now that is a pity. What will you do now, Bowman? You are forsaken. No help will come.
You see, troubles, the troubles for Jairus threatened to swallow him, didn't they? They threatened to swallow him. And Jesus was saying to Jairus, look at me, look at me. And Jesus would say that to you today, in whatever trouble it is that you have in your life, he would say, look at me, look at me. Don't orient. You see, that kid, the, the kid wanted to turn and he wanted to orient toward the problem and the trouble. And, Jesus kept, and the father kept saying, look at me, look at me. And that's what Jesus would say to you today. Tim Keller makes these comments in uh, his book on Mark. He says, both Jairus and the woman get far more than they asked for. You see, Jairus came to Jesus for a healing, didn't he? Not a resurrection. The woman came to Jesus for a healing. She got far much more than that. Be aware that when you go to Jesus for help, you will both give to and get from him far more than you bargained for. Be patient because the deal often doesn't work out the way you expected. Jairus came to Jesus to cure his daughter his dying daughter but he got far more than that when you go to jesus for help you get from him far more than you had in mind but when you go to jesus for help you also end up giving to him far more than you expected to give the woman wanted just a touch the woman probably wanted i'm I'm better i'm out of here i've got what i wanted but jesus wanted to deal with her in a far deeper way than that And you better believe, folks, that this week Jesus is going to interrupt you. He's going to interrupt you this week. And the question for you this week is going to be, will you turn to him? Will you orient to him? Will you become stoic? Will you try and suck it up? Jesus' timing is sublime. Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. Do you know what um, the sense of the Greek is behind this phrase? Is It's like, hey, honey, it's time to get up. It's actually, it actually sounds like what a parent would say in the morning to wake their kids up and get them ready to go to school. And so Jesus is waltzed in. You've got this daughter that's dead And Jesus waltzes in with these people. He cares about the whole situation and he just says a really affectionate, hey, honey, it's time to get up. And she gets up. She gets up. So incredibly tender. And you know what? Jesus' timing is perfect. But it's easy for us, isn't it? Because we know the ending. And Jairus didn't know the ending. He had to walk through the story to get to the ending. And that's really difficult. You see, for Jesus to cure a fever or raise from the dead are not that different to him. It seemed like Jesus was delaying for no good reason, but they didn't have all the facts. It seemed like Jesus was delaying his grace and committing malpractice. And sometimes in our lives, it seems like he's delaying his grace and his help. And he's committing malpractice. He's not doing things that he should be doing. But that's because we miss crucial pieces of information behind the story of why Jesus is doing what he's doing. Sometimes I think we can get frustrated with the speed at which God's doing things because there's something that we just don't know. There's an essential variable that's unavailable to us. And what's interesting about this, uh, this scripture and the way that Jesus handles this is this is not the only time where he delays and someone dies. 
Listen to this. This is out of John 11, verse 1 to 6. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he who you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Listen to these next couple of verses. These are haunting in one sense. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So because he loved them, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. <laughs> you get that? Now we'd go, oh, that's not loving. That's not loving at all. He's sick and he's going to die unless you get there. And Jesus goes, because I love you, I'm not going to go there now. I'm actually going to wait to go there until he's dead. Do you get that? Would you be happy with that? <laughs> Would you be happy with it? I mean, I asked one of my sons the other night, and I said, what do you think about Jesus waiting until the little girl died? What do you think about Jesus waiting until Lazarus died? But you know what? It doesn't really matter that much what you think about it. Because he's not a psycho. And he's not uncaring. He just has a different agenda to us most of the time. You know what? His agenda is always, always good. Have you ever sat with someone and thought, I can't understand why God isn't coming through? Ever sat with someone like that? I don't know why he's delaying. You see, life gets very, very hard sometimes. And many of you have had much harder struggles to deal with than I've had. But we can kind of complain to Jesus sometimes, can't we? And we can say things like, okay, you're the eternal son of God and you've lived for all eternity. You created the universe. But why would you know any better than I do how my life should be going? Do you see that? That's kind of the cry that comes out of the heart in the midst of a timing issue. And I'd ask you today, is God delaying something in your life? Are you ready to give up? Are you impatient with him? See, there may be a crucial factor that you don't have access to that he does. And in the middle of the story, what he's going to be saying to you is, look at me. Trust me. Look at me. Don't put your faith in an outcome. Trust in me. I'm going to show you a vid that was on uh, Huffington Post. It's been all over Facebook, so many of you have seen this. But what I want you to do, uh, or you've probably seen it, but what I want you to do as you watch it is I want you to think, what does this have to do with God's timing? It's a, uh, it's a clip about uh, kids who, and adults who have got uh, cochlear implants and they hear for the very first time. Recording, Lachlan. First, first hearing aid. Are you ready? No. <laughs> okay. This is the, the big this moment. This is the big moment. She's gonna hear something. We don't really know what. We're gonna roll the sign after pushing you in just a little bit. There you go. Beeping. So now technically your device is on. <laughs> Can you tell? Hey, I sound. You're hearing yourself better. 
elderly munchkin, but do I sound like one now? life we get snapshots don't we of God's timing and why it works the way that it works you know what struck me when I watched that the first time is I just thought that's what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back it's just going to make sense there's going to be a sense about it that you don't get that I don't get it's like how do you tell a deaf person what it's like to hear how do you tell someone who's in the project, who's living in the middle of God's story, what it's like that everything's going to make sense one day and that God's timing's going to be obvious and it's going to be okay? And like uh, Jairus, what was said at the end of the story of Jairus, when, when the girl was raised, everyone was overcome with amazement. See, that's being overcome with amazement, isn't it? And one day you're going to be overcome with amazement. And all the things that don't make sense, all the timing that just seems to be out of sync will make sense. It just will. Because he's good. Because he's not a psycho. Because he loves you and because he cares for you.